Why is the gender orgasm gap worse than the pay gap? Why should we be talking to our patients more about sex? And why is vaginal estrogen like Frank's Red Hot? Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a show by me, Dr. Bradley Block, and this is a practical guide for practicing physicians where we interview experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Dr. Rachel Rubin, thanks so much for being on the podcast. So happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So you you did your residency training in urology at Georgetown, where also my alma mater. Unfortunately, we didn't overlap there. Missed each other. Just missed each other. Uh, and then after training at Georgetown, you did your fellowship in sexual medicine with Erwin Goldstein in San Diego. And from what I read about him, he seems like one of the godfathers of sexual medicine. So it must have been a great experience. It was a great experience. You know, he really has mentored almost everybody there is in the field of sexual medicine. He uh, was really only doing male sexual medicine for many years. And then when Viagra came out in 1998, and he was the first author in the New England Journal of Medicine, his phone started ringing like crazy. And it was women calling being like, Goldstein, what do you got for us? And it was around the time his wife uh, was going through menopause. This has been written about in books, so it's not a secret. And he was like, well, shit, my sex life is getting worse. So what can we do? And he literally created the field of women's sexual medicine and has uh, been at the forefront, started an entire society devoted to women's sexual health, which is now, you know, 20 years old and or 25 years old even. And so it's been really an incredible journey. And really, he it took a long time to find that incredible mentor, but I was lucky enough to find it. Amazing. Amazing. And what motivated you during residency to say, like, this is the niche that I want? So I think it was, uh, I, I'm a weirdo, you know, in, in the sense of I didn't realize that me liking I really like spending time with people. I have learned that my my joy comes from human connection and human interaction and just getting to know people deeply. In fact, the idea of a 10-minute doctor's visit is a nightmare for me. This idea of I can only get a snapshot of one problem or one small thing because people are so interesting and, and just complex. And I found myself being interested in you know, as a urologist, you're interested in very personal things, right? You're talking about erections and orgasm and libido and prostates and all these things. And I didn't shy away from the sex questions, whereas I found that many of my attendings or, you know, people above me did. People are super awkward. Doctors are super awkward in general, but uh, specifically when talking about sex, I joke because it's, you know, all of our 20s were spent studying instead of experimenting. But I just found that I was really interested and so I was lucky. Again, I happened to find it at, at a urology meeting, a course that was being put on about female sexual medicine at the American Urologic Association. And it was just like, yes, this is what I want to do. This was amazing. And so I really, I do comprehensive sexual medicine. So I take care of all genders. So any love triangle that comes into my office, I say, okay, what parts do you have? What parts do you want? And how can we make them work better from that biopsychosocial approach, right? So we're very much trained in medicine of like men's sexual health is all biology and women's sexual health is all psychosocial. And it's not true. We're all kind of the same, actually. So if we're, if we're, let's say a primary care physician, right? And we want to make sure we're taking a good sexual history, you know, without going into a lot of detail, just because their visits are short and they're covering a lot of ground, two different questions. One, what's a good barometer that we can use from sexual history for other health issues, right? And then just what's an important question to ask socially, psychosocial about their sex life? 
I think just asking is absolutely the best thing. And for me, you know, if you think about when we're in med school and you're you're taught to take your history, well, sex is usually somewhere in the vice section of the social history. Do you smoke? Do you drink? Do you do drugs? Do you have sex? Right. This idea of like we're trying to screen for like STDs and high risk sexual behaviors. But sex is like this thing that literally everyone has or wants to have at some point in their lives or has questions about. And it's not a vice, right? It's absolutely not a vice. And so I would argue that taking it out of your vice section, right, in terms of your big check boxes is, do you have sex? Men, women, or both? And then you go on with your next question is really, you can just have open-ended questions of like, do you know, do you have any sexual health questions uh, today? Or are you concerned about any issues relating to libido, arousal, orgasm, or pain. You know, like you can really kind of, if you show interest and just are open-minded with a patient and ask them, well, hey, any relationships? Do you have partners? Is this your only partner? You know, do you have a preference for, for a type of partner? If you show interest and confidence and competence, patients will tell you things, right? And I think it is really important. We don't, the data shows that patients don't tell us anything because they want us to ask and they know we're not going to ask. And so, right, how many patients don't tell you that they like anal sex? Well, if you're going to do radiation on them, you know, for cancer, you probably should find out if they like anal sex, right? Or if they, uh, you know, have multiple different partners or, you know, polyamory is a big thing in DC. And so many patients won't tell you because they're afraid of being judged. And, you know, they, they, so they don't come to you for their STD testing because they're afraid of getting judged. And so really what I would say to doctors is think about your own visits in an exam room. Have you ever been asked about your sex life by a doctor? Has any doctor ever asked you what type of sex you're having or what type of sex you want? No, right? They don't. And so anything you can do more than nothing is like you're the best doctor ever, right? It's actually very simple. Just asking makes you like a superhero. You know, I often ask my patients about what they do for physical activity, you know, rather than exercise, physical activity. Uh, I, I guess I could dovetail that into what about sexual activity? You know, like, you know, I should be walking more, doctor. I should be, I should be, you know, playing pickleball more. And, but it, like, well, you could have sex more and that, that counts as physical activity, right? You want to increase your you know, your metabolic rate or whatever, more sex, more sex. You know, I will, I will tell you one of my favorite patients that I saw, she came to see me and she was having what's called genitourinary syndrome of menopause symptoms. And I always ask patients, they come to see me. I said, how'd you hear about me? And she said, oh, my ENT told me about you. I said, what? She said, yeah, I was meeting with my ENT and it came up that I was having urinary tract infections and she stopped the visit, went over to her phone, pulled up social media and pulled up a post that you've done about genitourinary syndrome of menopause. And she said, go see this lady. She knows what to do. And I, I, at the, as soon as the visit was over, I went to the, the group message boards of doctors. I said, I need this doctor's phone number immediately. I called her cell phone and I said, I've never met you before, but you are the best ENT I've ever <laughs> met in my life. And actually I had my son had, she took my son's tonsils out because no. when I got a list of ENTs that they recommended and she was on the list, I was like, she is a doctor above doctors. Like she's going to do the, she's going to take out my son's tonsils. <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. I'll definitely start, you know, taking better sexual histories from my patients as their otolaryngologist. Are you looking for some supplemental income? Who isn't? Maybe you're having trouble doing that at your current job, or you just need a change of pace, looking for some full-time work, part-time work, 
something to just make things a little more interesting in your life, you should consider locum tenens. What is locum tenens? You can find out at a great resource, locumstory.com. If you have questions, they have the answers. It has answers to basic questions like, what is locum tenens? To more complex questions, pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locum tenens. Visit locumstory.com today to learn more about locum tenens and see if it's right for you. That's L-O-C-U-M, story, all one word, dot com. Okay, so, but for health reasons, let's say we're trying to use a, because one thing that I've, you know, so I found you on Twitter. That's how I, I got in touch with you and made aware that you're out there. And something else that I learned from Twitter was ways to motivate my patients to get vaccinations. So the HPV vaccine, right? Near and dear to my heart, because I don't want to see them 30 years later with tongue and tonsil cancer. And so I'd like to make sure that all my teenagers are getting, especially the boys, because the uptake there is much lower. And so if I have the opportunity, I'll also mention that it can prevent warts on your dick. And so Mm -hmm. I use that sexual health as a motivator for other aspects of their health, right? Right. If I can motivate them to not get warts on their dick, and that'll later prevent them from getting tonsil and tongue cancer or, you know, spreading it to other other people as well. That's a big win right there. So is there any way we can leverage people's desire for healthy sex and good sex to help them with other aspects of their health? Absolutely. So uh, smoking is a huge one, right? Like smoking will make your penis not work as well, right? Smoking is terrible for erectile function. Diabetes, terrible for erectile function. So all these things where you tell patients, they don't really understand diabetes and hypertension and smoking, right? It's it, they're, they're these like symptomless things until it gets really severe. But when you're trying to tell patients like, no, no, you need to get these blood sugars under control. You know, it's, we focus on the feet for some reason, like, look, your feet have less sensitivity in them. Let's check your feet. How about the fact that your penis has less sensitivity, that your clitoris has less sensitivity, your orgasm is going to be muted. You're going to need that death grip, you know, uh, in order to orgasm as opposed to before it used to be much easier. So really, again, I think we shy away. We always think that everything's more important than sex. Very few things are more important than sex and, and sexual health. And couples, right? Couples get divorced because they don't continue to have intimate connections with each other, right? This like, that's a lot of money that people spend on divorce, right? When, when it's a very impactful, having bad sex is a very impactful for people's lives. And so if we could help as doctors, get people the education of what makes sex good and get people, get rid of the shame and the guilt and get people having fun in the bedroom, because honestly, people spend very little time in their lives having sex because of reproduction, right? Like most people are not having sex to make babies. And so if we don't ask people about what kind of sex they're having or what kind of sex they want to be having, we can't help. And so the education piece, who's teaching our patients sex ed, right? We're letting the porn stars teach. We're letting Gwyneth Paltrow and the goop stars teach. Like we're letting charlatans on Instagram teach. Like who's teaching sex ed? And the answer is nobody. high school health teacher. My male school, male gym teacher, and the only thing I remember what is what do you remember from your sex ed class? What do you remember? Well, I don't remember much, but I do remember the Wonder Years episode where the gym teacher drew a picture of the uterus and the ovaries, and it looked like a cow's head. 
That's that's my memory. That's your was memory. That's, a TV show. Well, yeah. Interestingly, my memory, the I, it was a male gym teacher. I, I can vividly remember the room I was in. But the only thing I remember is the word smegma because we oh. thought it was the funniest word ever. Yeah, it is. And, it is. Which which is funny because I went to a Jewish school where nobody had smegma because all the boys were circumcised. Right. And then I became a urologist. So that's funny, but I am a urologist who studies female smegma sort of as, as a research Avenue. And that's kind of funny also. So I would say middle school sex ed was very impactful uh, for me, but really, right. Like, like that's it. That's all you got. Like that's pretty pathetic, right. In 2023, people fundamentally don't understand their bodies, whether, you know, and that's what I love about my job is I take the smartest, most educated people in Washington, DC, and they know nothing. Thing about their genitals and how they function. It's this great equalizer, actually. So you mentioned you mentioned Gwyneth and Goop. So let's go down that path for a little bit. Let's try and dispel some misinformation and pseudoscience that's out there. So what are some of the things that you hear that patients come to you with? Maybe they found it, found it out from their doctor, maybe they found it out online, but things that you would like to dispel among the the, the, you know, it's a physician audience. So what, what do you want our listeners to know that maybe they think that isn't necessarily true? So I think this is, I will lump goop and general medicine sort of together in this. I think we need to dispel the myth that women just need to try harder, work harder, do more mindfulness, deep breathing exercises, you know, more yoga. And that's going to like make everything all better in their health, right? Like men up for menopause specifically, right? You have the women who feel awful, who have brain fog, night sweats, hot flashes, weight changes, hair loss, libido changes, orgasm changes, urinary tract infections. And we say things like take some supplements, just sleep more, just eat better, right? The, the whole menopause industry is really uh, toxic into like gaslighting women to think that they just need to pay more money and work harder. And Whereas right, we, and blaming, right. And, and putting it on them that like, this is in your control and providing no good education. So like menopause education of like a, what to expect and B you don't have to suffer, right. You don't have to put up with this. Like there is evidence-based treatments that are not dangerous for the vast majority of people that are being under-prescribed and under-recommended. So I actually understand why patients go to Gwyneth and go to Goop because they're looking for answers. And that 10-minute doctor visit that tells them just to exercise more is not really cutting it, right? It's not fulfilling it. So, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow is making money off of women's, you know, insecurities, which is a huge problem. But at least she's stepping up to the plate, whereas I think medicine is really falling behind. Well, in what area specifically? Are you talking about just menopause in general or are you talking about specifically sexual health? Because if it's sexual health, I'm not understanding where the yoga is coming in. No, no, no. More menopause in general, right? Okay, like, or it. even sexual, I would say sexual health too, right? Like we put it on women of, oh, you just need to do more date nights. You need to, you know, you need to put more effort into your mindfulness and sex, which is all true. It all works. But there is a hormonal sort of component and a biological dopamine component that we minimize. And, and we like to minimize women's sexual health to all psychosocial treatments. And we love for men's sexual health to be really like, oh, this is all biological treatments. So one of the things that I've learned from, from Twitter, from social media, is as an otolaryngologist, this is critical knowledge, 
the value of vaginal estrogen, right? I'm not sure how often that comes up on my Twitter feed. But Between reason, Ashley Winter. So Ashley Winter, yes. who has, I think, 150, she is Twitter's urologist. She was my co-fellow. I just hung out with her this past weekend. So she and I did fellowship together. She was my, my co-fellow. And she is incredible at yelling and screaming. And we have galvanized all of Twitter to care about vaginal estrogen. Yes. Amazing. Amazing. So for those not on Twitter, <laughs> tell, tell us about vaginal estrogen. So this is goes back to that ENT who sent a patient uh, to me for vaginal hormones. So this is really important. And this is really important for the primary care doctor listening, for the gynecologist listening, for the urologist listening, actually really for anyone with a woman in their life who's over 50 listening. So the genitals, right? So the genito and urinary tract are incredibly hormone sensitive. So let's take a baby girl, for example, right? Baby girls have pee in their diaper all day long, right? They have little tiny uh, vaginal openings. They have tiny little vulvas. It's red, it's raw, it's irritated and diaper cream. You put diaper cream all over it because it looks painful. That is no hormones, right? Baby girls do not have labia minora. Then when they go through puberty, you get the surge of hormones and the body transforms into adult genitals, right? You get a grow, you know, an, an, an opening that can handle a tampon, that you can have babies, right? You can have sex. Um, labia minora grow. The area becomes pink. It acidifies, right? It The clitoris grows. And so this is all very hormonal tissue. And so in menopause, you're kind of doing the reverse, right? You're going backwards. And so the tissue dries out. It becomes irritated and raw. Uh, you lose the acidity to fight infection. So the whole microbiome of the vagina and the bladder changes. And so you're more susceptible to infections like urinary tract infections, which can kill women and do kill quite a lot of women. And so say you have that woman who gets that ENT procedure and everything's fine. And then she gets a UTI afterward. Well, had she been on vaginal hormones, that would prevent her ability to get that, like her 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 likelihood of getting that UTI. So it's actually important for all surgeons. Those orthopedic surgeons, you know, right? They do their hip surgery and the little old lady gets septic, right? And needs a new hip. Like that's a big deal. And so vaginal hormones, usually vaginal estrogen, though vaginal DHEA is also an FDA approved product. What it does is it brings back the healthy microbiome of the tissue. It makes it strong. It makes it acidic. It makes it so that lubricates. So it's great for sex because it helps with lubrication. It helps with orgasm. It helps uh, make sex not painful. But more importantly, not more importantly, equally as important as it helps with urinary problems, urinary frequency, urinary urgency, leakage, and it prevents urinary tract infections, which as I just said, kill women. And so vaginal hormones are safe for pretty much every single human on earth. In fact, I will say there is no woman on earth where you could say you absolutely cannot have vaginal hormones. The only patients where you want to have a conversation where do the risks outweigh the benefits, and I'm here to tell you the benefits always outweigh the risks uh, when it comes to vaginal hormones, is a woman who's on an aromatase inhibitor for breast cancer. Now, notice I, I didn't say tamoxifen. I didn't say DCIS. I didn't say history of breast cancer, history of blood clots. It's fine. It's literally the one patient on aromatase inhibitor. It needs a conversation, but I'm here to say the benefits benefits always outweigh the risk because it's not, there's no significant data to show harm and the harm of recurrent UTIs, the harm of not being able to wipe or sit or wear pants. The problem is, is the message that we give doctors is this is just a little vaginal dryness. 
This is not a little vaginal dryness. And in fact, that term is killing women because we minimize, oh, it's a little vaginal dryness. Just put some lube on it. No, no, no. Like you have to actually change, like heal the tissue. It's like an open wound and you need healthy tissue. Think of a surgeon, right? You want healthy tissue to sew to, right? So if you have someone who has unhealthy, I'm sure there's an ENT uh, analogy here, right? Someone who has poor, poor oral hygiene versus someone who has wonderful oral hygiene. Like it makes a difference for your surgeries, right? And yeah. so it makes a difference for the health of a woman. And so um, it's so important. I could go on and on about this, but thank you for asking. That's so good. Twitter <laughs> is doing a great job. It was, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's imploding it's a getting, little on itself. It and hopefully Unfortunately, the new yeah, algorithm is not so take good. over. Not so good. I'm spending a lot of time there, but so, so let's say you are, so you're right now you're teaching, you're, you're, you're at the VA one day a week and now you've got your private practice as well. I would imagine that sometimes you have residents with you at the VA, sometimes they're medical students. So let's say you've got some medical students with you and they are, you don't know what specialty, they are undifferentiated medical students. You don't know where they're going to end up. What are some takeaways that you want them to have knowing that they might go on to become a neuroradiologist or a pathologist or, you know, something that would never overlap with your field? Yeah. You know, I think it's really, I love sexual medicine because nobody owns sexual medicine, right? It, sexual health encompasses the entire body. And so you actually need people in every specialty. And so I actually, if you name a specialty, I can come up with a, a pathology and a physiologic thing that I can make relevant to the sexual health and why we need them involved in sexual medicine. So any teaching I can do about basic anatomy, I'll give you a perfect example. We all understand that sciatica, right? Pain in the leg, but it's not a leg problem, right? It's a back problem. So we see sciatica of the genitals all the time, right? And we call it genitopelvic dysesthesias that can happen. So penis pain or vulvar pain or clitoral pain or itch. Gosh, we see people who have like, gosh, this itch is driving me crazy or these neurologic symptoms that happen. But the spine surgeons, the neurologists, they, they don't get training in pelvic neurovasculature. And so there is, there's even some anatomy that's not even fully like cadaverized yet in, in females, which is a amazing if you can believe it. But so getting people to understand that some of these sexual health conditions are actually spine problems, right? Or, you know, problems from psych medications or problems, right? So we have to actually all know about these things because you're going to see patients, right, who get their oral cancers from, you know, HPV and from sexual activities. Like we have to be having this conversation. Okay. So the big takeaway for them is just, it needs to be, it will somewhere overlap with your specialty. So it's something that you need to be acutely aware of, right? Actually, you just brought it to my attention that maybe I should be asking my nasal polyp patients about oral sex, right? They can't breathe through their nose. Some of them have polyps growing literally out of their nose. And so they can't breathe at all. How are you going to perform oral sex if you can't breathe through your nose? And do they have, and they all have questions about it, but they're too afraid to ask, yeah. right? Or they don't put it together, right? They don't really connect it and they need a place right? To actually, as soon as you open the door and you're like, sure, ask me whatever. It's like they become middle schoolers again. And all of a sudden they have all these questions. It's actually pretty fun. You get to see these 75 year old guys who are like, oh, I didn't know that's where the clitoris was. And that's what it looked like. And it's really that big. It goes all the way down to the butt bones, you know, 
wow, I got to go talk to my partner and like explain what I learned, right? Patients love learning things. They really do. And when you take time, this is the problem. You know, medicine, as we all know, is very broken because we don't have time and patients are a commodity, right? They're just, they're volume. And that is the part that just, it doesn't work well with what I do for my living. No, no. Yeah. A a 10 minute visit. Let's talk about your sex life. Go. (laughs) Two minutes left. And now, yeah. Yeah, that's not that, that's not going to work. Okay, so let's talk about referring doctors. So either primary care physicians or, or, or I guess from what you're telling me, every specialty should be referring you patients. But I would imagine most of them are coming from other urologists, OB, and primary care, right? Kind of a little bit of a you know when if if you build it, they will come, and the pun is definitely intended there. But um, <laughs> what I will say is there's there's certainly not enough of us who do this work. And once people find out about it, um, they're interested, right? They say, "Well, I've never spent an hour talking about my sexual health, and man, like I would like to have a libido again, and man, my orgasm's just not the same as it used to be, or man, my erections are are pretty weak." And that you're all just spent two minutes with me. I didn't like him very much, you know. I didn't feel comfortable, but I've seen three videos Dr. Rubin did and I am hooked, right? Like I, I feel comfortable. I know, like, and trust her. That's the key to marketing people become no like, and trusted. Right. And so I actually, when I opened my doors, when I started seeing patients, you know, six years ago, it was with, it was not doctors that I marketed to. It was actually pelvic floor, physical therapists and sex therapists. And I went up to all of them in the area. And I said, this is who I am. This is myself phone number. You are my team member. I cannot do this without you. And so, um, and I was busy from day one. And so that was really, and then of course the doctors found out about me, my social media presence was, became known. And so I get a lot of self-referrals, a lot of, Hey, I saw you on that weird YouTube show, you know, and things like that. But I will say definitely finding the team members who you work best with and sexual medicine, as I said, is biopsychosocial. So there's a lot of musculoskeletal issues surrounding sexual medicine, like pelvic pain in all genders, urinary issues in all genders, pelvic floor physical therapists are brilliant, incredible, you know, team members and then sex therapists, right? Like it's actually very funny because the sex therapist, you know, the first wave is they send me the patients. The second wave about year three, four, they all started becoming my patients because what happened is they all basically would see their clients start to do better, right? When there was, when the biological issues were acknowledged and treated, their jobs became so much easier and more fun. And so then they said, well, I'll have what she's having and I want to come in as a patient. And so that, you know, again, when your trusted colleagues then want, you know, the help, it's just such an incredible experience. Yeah, actually, now that I'm thinking, one of my first, maybe like my 20th episode was with a physiatrist, physical medicine rehabilitation, then we talked about pelvic pain. Like, I was like, why is a physiatrist managing pelvic pain? And, you know, this is this is that overlap that you're seeing with the, yeah. uh, with you know, multi, multidisciplinary. There's tons of overlap. I mean, I mean, I'll talk with oncologists. I'll talk with pain management doctors, right? I'll say, hey, go, hey, go to, you know, my friend, Dr. Cherick down the street and have her block your L5S1 because I think it's causing your clitoral pain, right? And we have those relationships where if I sent her to someone I didn't know and they said, hey, Dr. Rubin wants you to block L4, L5 because she thinks it's causing my clitoral pain. They'd be like, get out. Right. But because I know, you know, because I have these relationships with doctors and they've heard and they've listened, and they've seen the research. They're like, oh, huh, that's kind of interesting. Well, I don't really get it, but sure. Let's let's you know, let's give it a try. Yeah. So if there's one big takeaway from today and it's not 
you know, what we've talked about already. Something, something different, not vaginal estrogen, not the, uh, that all of us should have some background in sexual medicine and should be thinking about that for, for our patients. What's one more big takeaway that you want all of our listeners to have? I want the listeners to deeply understand that it's not just a pay gap I'm worried about, right? Women are getting paid a lot less than men. We have an orgasm gap in this country that is extremely serious and I think contributing to this pay gap. So if you give every heterosexual man, right, uh, the question and you say, okay, during your last sexual encounter, did you have an orgasm? 95% of heterosexual men say yes, right? Only 65% of heterosexual women say yes. And if we understand as doctors anatomy and physiology, we have understand homologs. We all start the same way. The clitoris and the penis are exactly the same thing. The penis is just a, a clitoris on steroids, that steroid being testosterone, right? But it is the same thing. And so if men, if you don't orgasm by rubbing your thigh, why would a woman a woman orgasm by vaginal penetration? It doesn't happen very often, right? It's your thigh is close to your penis, but it is not your penis, right? And so women don't orgasm from penetration. And we live in this society, right? The average man orgasms in about five and a half minutes, and the average woman never orgasms from penetration. So the math is not in your favor if you're expecting a woman to have massive pleasure during penetration. And so if we acknowledge that the way women orgasm majority is through clitoral stimulation, well, then you'd have more of a one-to-one, -one, you know, and, and actually it, the data, the physiology gets more interesting because women don't have a refractory period. So men, they have an orgasm and they're done for the night, right? Like there's no, you know, some of them can, you know, bounce back, but really it's not common. Women don't have that. They can orgasm multiple times. So the ratio being what it is, is really pathetic. And so women, we need to value women's pleasure. Women need to value their own pleasure. We need to acknowledge that 90, 98% of the clitoris is internal so that vibration and devices actually may be needed in the bedroom to enhance pleasure, not because you're not a good partner. And so it's really important, I think, for doctors to understand it for their own personal sex lives, for their own, you know, patients' sex life is patients don't know this information. You probably didn't know this information, not you. I know you knew this information, but I'm saying the people listening, right? Like didn't know. <laughs> and so if you didn't know it, if you didn't know the full anatomy of the clitoris, right, your patients don't either. And so that is part of why we've been so, um, people are so interested in what we have to say is because we're bringing these words to make it easy for people to say the word clitoris, right? That's not, you. that really hasn't been the case. And so that, that would be what I would want to teach is about the orgasm gap, women's pleasure, right? The whole point of sex when you're not making babies is about fun and pleasure, right? It's joyful, it's fun. And so if you if only one one part one person in the in the group is having a great time, it's not that fun, right? You want everyone to have a good time. And we're recording this on International Women's Day. So Woohoo! Go women. That is a perfect <laughs> the perfect conclusion for for this uh for for today. Okay, so so first I want to ask you where people can find you. And then if they don't live in the DC area and they want to refer to a sexual medicine physician, where do we find someone who's has similar training to you? So let's start with you. Where do we find you online and in person? Fabulous, fabulous question. So so rachelrubinmd.com, I have a mailing list. So you, I send funny, I, I, I'm funnier in writing sometimes. And so rachelrubinmd.com, you can sign up for the mailing list. All my social media is Dr. Rachel Rubin, Dr. Rachel Rubin. Um, and then uh, to find a sexual medicine specialist, you can always check out for if you're a woman, 
Iswish, I-S-S-W-S-H.org, the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. There's a find a provider a tool. And then if you are um, a man, typically SMSNA, the Sexual Medicine Society of North America, SMSNA.org, and there's a find a provider. Um, there are uh, providers within both of those groups who see transgender patients as well. So you just want to find someone who has a, a subspecialty. So we, we really can encompass sort of all patients who have sexual health problems. And many of us do, you know, I'm on all the, the, the all, both of those find a provider. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all the important work that you do and for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast player. I'm also available for medical legal consulting and keynote speaking if you're interested or to just give us some feedback on the show, email me at brad at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com. I'll see you next week. The ideas expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those in this podcast accept no liability for medical decisions based on the information herein. And as the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice. This does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. And if you have a medical problem, seek medical attention.